Thank you all so much for joining us this Sunday. Um, if you have been following with us in our series in the Gospel of John, y'all, we are at the penultimate chapter of the Gospel. We're at the climax of the story that this Gospel writer is trying to tell. So let's actually just get right into it. We're going to read most of the chapter. We'll read through the, the accounts that we're sharing, and then we'll get into it from there, all right? <clears throat> All right, so we're starting in John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I am not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So really what we'll be talking about today is trying to unpack what it means for the people in this account to have seen 
Jesus after he had been handed over for execution by the government. And we're going to have to work through what that means for us today when we also think through what it means uh, for these first followers of Jesus to have uh, claimed to have uh, seen him after he died. Now, I know that many of us might be uh, in this room. I know that many of us are coming from different angles for how this story might strike you. And even in the phrase, like, I have seen Jesus, you know, we may have people uh, in the room who are coming at it from the angle of, well, you know, what's the big deal? I don't think anything about it. Uh, I see Jesus all the time. I see him uh, when I, on my inspo board, when I get ready to go to the gym, right? Like that's, in that sense, that language is, I have seen Jesus, meaning, do we see Jesus like in a dream, in a vision, in our hopes, metaphorically, right? In an inspirational way. Then there's also a separate perspective that would be saying, I have seen Jesus, like looking at this story and saying, yeah, uh, I don't think anything of it because uh, everything happened uh, in that account, uh, literally exactly like the Gospel of John tells it. There's nothing really uh, uh, unusual about it there, uh, and we're good. And I think that these, the range of reactions that you may have, so much of it depends on your history, hearing stories like this, your own context. Um, it might uh, d uh, depend on your priors that you bring to the text itself. I think there are uh, often perspectives on a text like this that would say, you could come at it from the angle of like, look, no matter how reasonable the, the account seems, uh, I simply don't believe in a world where dead people can come back from the dead period, right? So that's a priori is impossible for the things in this story to have happened the way that they are described. We may have some people then who have priors that like, okay, I think miracles are possible. Maybe anything is possible. And, but um, you would have questions like, how, how do we know that this miracle is one that actually happened? How, is the, how, do we, how can we know that the account that is offered here is reliable? How can we know? Um, the real, re, in reality, no matter where you fall uh, across these, um, you know you may uh, think all of the accounts and uh, all of the claims in this account make a perfect sense. And I've heard it since I was a child. Uh, nothing really seems that challenging. Uh, I think some of us may be uh, like uh, quantum particles, where depending on when I ask you, you could be in any one of these positions that uh, that I um, uh, outlined. Um, the thing is, though, for today, it's okay. Like wherever you are, we're going to work through it together. Uh, our goal, um, my goal in this discussion will be to help us make the most sense out of a bunch of occurrences that we just read that kind of make no sense. And uh, if, it, if you read this story and everything makes obvious sense to you, then my goal there also is for you to appreciate just how strange the stories were that we just read and how that could help us get meaning and value from the text that we're going to read. So, so that's, that's what we're going to do today. The, the last time uh, I was preaching, I think we talked about um, whether Jesus was God. So now we're doing, did Jesus come back from the dead? So we're just going for the core on, on these topics, right? We're just going to go at it uh, and take it from there. So um, thankfully, when we are trying to uh, address these kinds of questions of like, did these events really happen the way that the account itself describes? Um, we actually have uh, a perspective within the story itself that somewhat resembles the 21st century modernist perspective that many of us might bring to the text itself. And that perspective is embodied in one of the disciples, uh, Thomas. 
So that, this is uh, Thomas the twin, uh, and uh, he is, he's one of the disciples he featured prominently in this chapter uh, that we just read. It's unclear where he got the nickname, the twin. If, if he was a twin, that was the laziest naming by parents uh, ever. So you get twins, you call one twin, which also for me raises the question like, what do you name the other twin if uh, that was the case? But he, he is called, uh, to, like Thomas, that word derives from twin. And as he is pictured here, um, he is known or associated with being incredulous. Uh, in this case, of course, uh, in this picture presented as being incredulous that a uh, Roman spear could pierce through those obliques that Jesus had, right? That's how, how does that happen? That's the, clearly the hardest thing to believe uh, in this whole account. But now, actually, he, so this is a you know, famous incredulous Thomas, doubting Thomas, right, is the, the, the phrase that we often use to describe him. And in fact, um, doubt is actually the word that Jesus himself uses to describe Thomas's attitude um, in the, the account itself. Now, often... Historically, many followers of Jesus often kind of, um, you know, use, use Thomas as a negative example in how to respond to uh, evidence presented that, uh, for, for the, you know, the, the, the claim that Jesus came back from the dead. We'd say like, oh, stop being a doubter and just believe. Believe the story that the, the gospel of John seems to be telling. And uh, honestly, I, I have for a long time believed that Thomas gets a bad rap for framing it that way um, for, for many reasons. But uh, the, you know, the, the leading one being, um, you know, y- y- can you really blame him for wanting empirical evidence for this bizarre thing that his uh, fellow disciples were, uh, were bringing to him, right? That's, I think that's very reasonable. I know for a fact many of you all feel the same way. In fact, I think many of you would identify with Thomas a step further when you would say that you can see in him, you see yourself, you say, he wants to follow Jesus, but he has theological baggage that is preventing him from going all in. I know that that's the case for, for many of us here. There's another one too, where I think probably many of you will, uh, will uh, resonate with him even further, where he doesn't feel pressure to join the other disciples on Sunday, right? So this is, uh, the, like you, you may have seen in the story, the reason that Thomas is in this situation is when the other disciples were gathered together on the first day of the week, he wasn't there. And then he shows up the next time uh, as if it didn't matter that he wasn't there before, right? So, there, you know, even Kevin earlier said there's no obligation at Spark. There's only seduction. So I guess... Uh, <laughs> Jesus did not seduce Thomas enough for him to show up uh, there. But really, again, like how, how can this group of us in particular feel that bad about Thomas's reaction? In fact, I think Thomas resonates with us so much. You could really basically call him Sparkling Thomas. Just throw in, uh, he loves book clubs, loves Roberto's tacos. You're describing uh, a lot of people in this room. So this is actually, you know, like this is our entry point into the story. This is not one of those stories where every character is reacting in a way that is completely unrelatable to us or tethered to reality the way that we perceive it. So let's, let's go with that. Let's go with Thomas's entry point into the story, trying to evaluate, can we believe the, uh, what, the way John is describing uh, the account here? And what actually is John uh, asking us to consider in this case? Um, this, uh, this, you know, this text then uh, provides us with, I think, actually a very helpful way for many of us to approach faith especially for those of us who are very empirically or scientifically oriented, right? Where what uh, I think many times we have either grappled with or been offered definitions of faith that are like, 
Um, you believe uh, in the absence of evidence, or you believe contrary to evidence, right? Which to me, again, like to many of you, if you're a scientist, sounds ridiculous. Like that's a bad way to like know things. And I think what, what I find special about the way this discussion goes between Jesus and Thomas is that Jesus meets Thomas where Thomas is at with his priors. It's not like Jesus says, uh, no, don't worry about it. Uh, you missed it last week. Take my word for it. Uh, I, I'm actually alive. No, he actually, he affirms Thomas's request and he actually offers his body for Thomas to evaluate. And then he blesses, he goes a step further and blesses people in anticipating a world in which he won't be there always for everybody else to have the same kind of interaction with the evidence. So, it's, so the faith that the Gospel of John is presenting is one that is simultaneously both tethered to empirical evidence and goes beyond it, understanding that there are ways to know things in the world beyond just what you can experience with your own senses. So let's start working through it together from the ground up from, uh, from Thomas's perspective, from the way different people are reacting uh, in this account. So uh, I think it helps also for us to, to start from a modern perspective that many of us will be starting from, is dead people stay dead, right? That is, uh, that is the, the experience of many of us. Uh, there, now, of course, I actually don't, I don't want to downplay the reality that many people all over the world do report having experiences that although in general, dead people stay dead. Many people have experiences where they or their loved one has, has actually come back from being dead. But even with those cases in mind, we and the original audience who would have encountered Jesus would have been operating from the general premise that dead people stay dead, right? This is, um, th this is a, a, a narrative that is actually very clear um, throughout even the, the Old Testament. So in the stories that Jesus' people and his ancestors would have uh, lived in, um, there is, you know, I think sometimes because we, uh, for those of us who follow Jesus and think that Jesus came back from the dead, we may uh, overestimate how much the story of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus also shares that perspective. If you were with us for our series through the wisdom literature, we actually brought up many times, there were songs or poems or narratives where the, the characters or the writer would really reflect on the deep sorrow that is death and the, the sense of finality of it. So we talked about this a lot in Ecclesiastes, for example. But it comes up in other parts of wisdom literature itself. I suppose it's, it's not a surprise that our, our songs kind of reveal so much about what we truly feel in, uh, when we're trying to deal with existential questions like this. So there is um, an example where, you know, like a, a, a classic one in the book of Job, where Job is ranting uh, to God about uh, the suffering that he's experiencing. And he offers this rhetorical question as part of it. He says, if someone dies, will they live again? 
Now, many of us, because we're coming at it from a perspective post-Jesus, 2,000 years after Jesus, we would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a rhetorical question. And of course, the rhetorical answer is yes. You, so, some people or all of us will live again uh, after we die. But if you actually follow the context in the story itself, that is a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is no. Job, the way he's presenting the story is the only release that he will get from his suffering is when he dies, because that's the end of everything. Everything. That's the perspective that he is coming from, and so much of the literature in the Old Testament is operating with. In fact, there is so the um, you know over in the couple centuries uh, before Jesus's time, there was some work done by the Jewish community to translate their their Bible into Greek. So the Septuagint that is the the text that they they had, and that uh, that text actually. Uh, many scholars will point out, translates or, or writes the, that uh, line that we just have here slightly differently to be less of a rhetorical question and more of just a general statement, right? A statement that's actually friendlier to the presuppositions that many of us followers of Jesus will have to say like, oh yeah, 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 if, you are, uh, if people die, they will live again and then comes final judgment. But it's, it's telling that that kind of shift happens just in the couple centuries before Jesus' time. You can actually see, like throughout the, in the, the narrative of the Old Testament itself, and in the time period, uh, you know, in the couple hundred years leading up to Jesus, there's actually a shift in how uh, followers of God thought about what, is, uh, what happens to you after you die. So earlier in, in the narrative, you will actually see more stories that really do talk about death as the, the final act of, of the whole story. But then in the centuries leading up to Jesus' time, you have much more uh, theological fleshing out of this concept of life after death, of judgment after death, where God will make right everything that is wrong in the world today. So there is, so it, uh, it's actually why, for example, you will see in much of the Old Testament, there is virtually no mention of resurrection or life after death. But by the time you get to the Gospels, you jump right in, and the Gospels actually presuppose that many of the Jewish followers in Jesus' circles actually believe in the resurrection. And we'll talk about what that means when they would have said, we believe in the resurrection, and then the twist that Jesus puts on that. So that's what, what we're dealing with, right? There is, uh, again, this is like uh, in literature in the Old Testament that is not that uh, not that far from around Jesus' own time, there's one, really only one, prominent reference to life after death that occurs again late in the Old Testament narrative, uh, just a couple centuries before Jesus' time. And it comes in Daniel, which is a prophetic, apocalyptic style of literature. And during, uh, in, in one of the visions that Daniel is presenting, um, he shares this vision, uh, talking about a time of judgment, future judgment, where it says, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is, this is the kind of text that actually does do a good job of reflecting perhaps what some of the Jewish people in Jesus' circles would have believed about what happens after you die, where there's this crystallizing of thought around um, final judgment and God vindicating 
those who have sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the, uh, th- this type of, uh, this presupposition actually shows up in the gospel accounts pretty normally, right? So um, earlier in the gospel, earlier in this gospel, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he first approaches uh, Lazarus's siblings on his way. Uh, and Jesus, where, so in, in the scene leading up to it, Jesus said to her, uh, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So this was strong enough of a prior where if, uh, if Jesus were to say to somebody uh, about somebody who had just died, um, you know, I'm going to raise them up. They, like their, their prior anchors on that resurrection in the last day so much, they would say, yeah, I, I know he will in the last day, on judgment day when it comes. Now, of course, the twist that Jesus offered in that story was uh, he was not going to raise Lazarus again on the last day on judgment day. He did it then and there, right? And then, uh, and Lazarus came back from the dead and uh, it was a significant moment in the overall narrative of the gospel of John. One thing to note too, though, right, is uh, when Lazarus came back from the dead, he was the same old Lazarus. Uh, that he um, was not, uh, he, he was not like the body that the John chapter 20 describes that Jesus had, right? And this is actually like the, the few times that there is a story of a dead person coming back from the dead, even in the Old Testament, it is a human being coming back from the dead as the human being they were when they died. And again, we should think through, uh, is that what's being presented here about Jesus? Is that what John is describing uh, happened to Jesus? And if not, then uh, what did actually happen to Jesus? Because Jesus's body um, is, was uh, the one that came back from the dead, was in one sense the same body, even though the tomb was empty, but in a very a series of very weird other senses, it was not the same one. And again, like, maybe you've heard the story so many times that maybe you even gloss over all of the ways that Jesus's body does not seem to meet the criteria and the framework that his original audience would have had for what to expect of a resurrected body. Because remember, even in that reference in Daniel, um, when it describes what, what resurrected bodies would be like on the last day, what, what do we say? It was language like shining bright, like the, like the, the stars in the sky, right? So this like a beautiful, immaculate uh, shining, right? That, that's what we're looking at. So instead... Here are some of the examples of what we read in the, uh, in the account. So uh, in John chapter 20, it says, She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And we didn't cover this today, but in the next chapter, this uh, weird confusion around like you're looking at Jesus, but you don't actually recognize him, but he is Jesus, and then he reveals himself to be Jesus, happens again. It happens to the disciples where it says Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Then they do in a little bit after that. In an independent account, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a similar story that happens where Jesus is walking on the road alongside two other people, and they walk for a long time. They spend a lot of the day together, and they, don't, they, they're t- they spend their time talking about Jesus, but it's only afterwards when they break bread together that they realize they are looking at Jesus. So something about this body indicates that when you encounter it, You may not even recognize what you're looking at, or sometimes you recognize it and sometimes you don't. There's another strange encounter with it where it says, uh, the Gospel of John 
twice in this narrative says the doors were locked where the disciples were meeting. So it says, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So it'll say that, it says that uh, a couple times in the narrative. So again, whatever this resurrected body is, it apparently can pass through uh, doors. It can, it can uh, move through space and time uh, in a way that um, uh, clearly terrifies them to, to some extent. There's also the, the reality that we have to grapple with where the, you know, we often, uh, and in, in um, images like in Daniel, we think of the resurrected body as like the, um, the like flawless epitome of what uh, a human being could look like and be like. And yet, um, Jesus offers the scars of his crucifixion as available to his disciples to touch. Now, uh, Jesus would have been like brutally marred uh, during the crucifixion. And so the, he seems to be, I guess, based on their reactions, mostly cleaned up. But somehow he left just a, a couple pieces of evidence for them to really connect with. Again, this is weird. Like, why did he choose those two scars? Why not the rest of it? Why isn't he perfect? Wouldn't it be more like amazing if he just didn't even have those scars in the first place? Is that permanent for him? 2,000 years from now, when things come back, he's always going to have the holes in his hands? That doesn't seem right. So this is a, these are the kinds of things where, in retrospect, we may have gotten used to this. But it's, it's, uh, if you were writing this story from scratch, these, it's hard to think that these were the details that one would have come up with to convey credibility. And there's lastly uh, another aspect of this story, too, is that the resurrected Jesus eats so apparently his digestive system, however resurrected bodies work, is still intact. And this is, you know, we're basically looking at a scenario where we're like, okay, got it. So he, uh, he you know, he heals, but has some of his scars. He can dis disguise himself, he can eat food, and he can teleport out of the room uh, when he's done with all of those things, right? That's what, that's what we're, uh, we're dealing with. And these details are significant in and of themselves. We bring them up in, in a variety of ways, um, especially, you know, in, in circles, uh, scholarship circles that try to identify when the Gospel of John was written. Often there's a perspective that it was written very late and it reflects stories about Jesus that were very, very late. Like they were ones that were uh, likely not in circulation around the time of um, the, the first disciples who encountered Jesus. Their ideas put forward like, oh, the, um, the Gospel of John seems to be fighting docetism or fighting Gnosticism. Basically, it's the idea that the, the Gospel of John, the way that it portrays Jesus' resurrected body, is trying to, um, uh, trying to resist theories that uh, Jesus didn't actually come back in his literal body, the same one, that he was maybe a ghost or just a vision, something immaterial, right? And the Gospel of John seems to be going out of its way by saying Jesus ate and that you could touch his body to say, oh, that we're, we're fighting those kinds of beliefs. But again, if that was the story you were trying to make, you were trying to emphasize that Jesus came back in like a, that actual physical body, including details like he could also disguise his body when he was present and that he could pass through walls and teleport literally does gives away that entire case right like these are not again these aren't the, the kinds of stories that would have just uh, appeased all of the critics uh, in the day in fact the way many of these stories are told the, the the body that Jesus presents is a liability in terms of like a credible story you're trying to present 
Um, the, uh, it's almost as if, you know, they're trying to take an experience that they had no framework for and retrofit a framework around it. And so much of life is uh, like this, like having wild, uh, uh, unexpected encounters with the divine, uh, and then you reshape the, everything you thought about God around those encounters. And that does, to me, appear to be what the writer of the, this gospel is doing. So there's a, another part, too, to that build on the, the challenge of what's going on here, something that we, we often struggle to make sense of, where at times uh, in the gospel accounts, especially around Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it looks like there are four maybe very different takes on the gospels. So we have actually, you know, as we've been preaching through the series um, in, in this gospel, we've been uh, talking about um, you know, the, the ebb and flow of, you know, sometimes it seems to be that different gospel accounts are all drawing from the same story or the same source. And at other times, it looks like they're drawing from very different sources. Um, what is special about the last few chapters in the Gospel of John is that we have four gospels that are all talking about the exact same sequence of events, Jesus' death, his burial, and allegations around his resurrection. But the details that the different gospel writers bring do seem to vary widely. So there is, um, you know, for a story uh, in which, for a story that hinges on the testimony of eyewitnesses, you might look at this and say, wow, these gospels can't even get their, uh, their uh, eyewitness lineup straight, right? So across the different gospel accounts, these are the, the different versions that they share of who was present um, at the empty tomb. Then um, th th these kinds of differences actually show up quite a bit um, throughout the Gospels, even just talking about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There are differences in the Gospel accounts, material ones, around the time of day that Jesus was crucified. So the Gospel of Mark uh, has him uh, being crucified around 9 a.m., uh, and then the Gospel of John has him being handed over for crucifixion at noon. Um, there, is, uh, there are different accounts of the inscriptions, what is written, what is the accusation leveled against Jesus that is put on the cross when he is executed. There, and then, of course, there are differences over who is present uh, at the crucifixion itself, who is present or with him during his burial, and then as we have been talking about who is present um, and there at the empty tomb itself. The, um, the inscription itself, I think, is, uh, is, is an especially good example of the challenge that uh, we're presented with when we're dealing with um, different accounts uh, trying to report about the same thing that happened. So uh, if you look at uh, the different uh, inscriptions that are put forward on the, uh, across the four accounts, you have the Gospel of Matthew saying, um, this was the inscription, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. I've color-coded it so you can follow the different phrases that, that occur throughout. So you have uh, in the Gospel of Mark, the king of the Jews. That's the, the principle or the inscription that's put there. Then you have Luke saying, this is the king of the Jews. And then the one that we just read today, uh, or we read in the Gospel of John, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Okay. So these are what uh, the, the inscriptions say. 
Now, I think perhaps you actually look at this and like, oh, that doesn't bother me that much. Seems like there's room for some flexibility in how you report things. I actually think that's a very healthy perspective to approach it. But I think a lot of people, both uh, people who want to believe everything the text is saying and people who want to be critical of everything this text is saying, look at this and they would be like, there must be a way to harmonize this perfectly. And if there isn't, then it can't possibly be true. Right? Even though you would look at these accounts and be like, wow, that's a lot of different pieces of evidence saying the accusation against Jesus was he was the king of the Jews. That's the thing that they didn't like about him. That's why he was executed. And yet, if you, in, in many circles, they would say, no, 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 this is, is actually a very simple explanation for this. The inscription actually said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And each gospel writer is just taking the part of it that actually is relevant to the case that they're trying to make. Now, again, maybe you're like, I guess that's reasonable, that's possible. The weird thing about taking that kind of approach to try to harmonize it is you end up with creating a fifth reading that doesn't occur in any of the Gospels. You've just made up one that wasn't even there to make sense of all of the other ones. And this type of approach happens a lot. Like people try to do this so much with all of the different accounts about Jesus's resurrection, like the ones that we're reading through. They, and what happens is, you know, when you try to flatten out the accounts like this, you end up creating readings that don't exist. And you also end up missing the individual reflection and testimony and emphases that each gospel writer and the community around that gospel is trying to sustain. It also, when you do this, uh, this kind of flattening, it also downplays the role that multiple independent traditions played in spreading the news about people's early experiences with Jesus. It's better to just let the accounts speak for themselves and appreciate the different traditions that arose from this one experience that people had uh, with the risen Jesus. Now, uh, no matter which account you are reading, there is one other uh, challenge or some, something that really uh, doesn't make much sense when you're able to deconstruct it um, in this account. And you would have seen it come up in, when we talked about who were the uh, witnesses at the empty tomb. And that is, in the gospel accounts, the women show up and show out. This is an, if you look at the, the way different uh, disciples of Jesus react and respond throughout the Gospels, one of the things that is consistent across all four of them in any amount of details is that Jesus' female followers were ahead of everyone else in knowing where the story was headed and how to respond to things that they saw. Now, of course, everybody freaked out, including the women who saw it, but you'll see, even in the text that we read today, that Jesus entrusted them with the, the message of his coming back from the dead. And, uh, you know, perhaps, again, you're reading this from the 21st century, you're like, oh, of course, that, that makes sense that, uh, that many of these women were there. That's great, right? You, you know, like just a couple days ago, right? We saw the Wakanda Forever come out. Women show up and show out in that movie as well, right? And you could, and in that story, right, in, uh, in the way that story flows, it's very organic and natural that those women have the authority and power that they do. But that's not what it was like in these gospel accounts. That was a very different world with very different biases that, um, in which the gospel writer tells this story that hinges on the testimony and credibility and respect of women. 
So the, uh, the, this, the story, you know, in no matter which version you read, uh, actually kind of uh, approaches it this way. The, uh, the, the culture, the surrounding culture in Jesus' day really, genuinely, did not give women the level of respect and credibility and authority that it did to their male counterparts. That doesn't sound like anything that exists today, right? right. Thank God, thank God we've, uh, we've solved that. Um, yeah, so that, so, but this is the, the situation, right, that, that we're dealing with there. And yet here we are with the, the gospel writers telling a story where Jesus meets Mary Magdalene, where she is, and shows himself to her and commissions her to go out and tell the good news to his other disciples. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out that if you think of an apostle as a sent one, someone who is sent out to go and preach the good news about Jesus' resurrection, then that makes the women in this story the apostles to the apostles. That is what we're dealing with in this story. And this story then leverages so much of its, uh, of its ability to be truthful um, on what really in that ancient world would have been a liability. To help you appreciate uh, how much this would have been a liability, it actually helps to hear other accounts or other testimonies about Jesus's resurrection and how it was handed down across generations or from people to people in the early days of the Jesus movement. So this is, uh, this is an account from the Apostle Paul. So this is written not very long after Jesus's life on earth. We're talking within a couple decades of Jesus's time in a letter, 1 Corinthians, that historians undisputably uh, attribute to the Apostle Paul. And in it, he describes the, the uh, testimony that had been handed down to him about the risen Jesus. So this is what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. This is actually a, com a compelling insight that we have into how the, the Jesus story was circulating in the very early days uh, of the Jesus movement. So again, regardless of when you think the Gospel of John was written, like even if you know, think it was like 100 years uh, after the time of Jesus, what we have here. Is, uh, is a take or a narrative, a tradition around Jesus' resurrection that occurs not very long after uh, the, the alleged events in question. But what do you notice about this account uh, that seems to be so different from what we just read? The women, the testimony of the early women who saw Jesus first has been erased. It is not clear, so that, you know, when scholars try to dissect how this tradition would have come to Paul, it's not clear that Paul even knew about the women in the traditions in the gospel accounts. We, we don't have uh, any way of knowing that for sure. But what we do know is by the time that we get to Paul, these are the, the key, credible, uh, respectable people who you can point to to say, oh yeah, 
They, they're the ones who have been spreading. These, 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 these are the testimonies that we got. We got it from the 12, right? Like that's, that's what's going on. You know, they, and if you're trying to think of, okay, so is it possible that the gospel of John just made up the testimony around these women being there present. What you'd be presented with is the challenge of, um, what that would mean is there was this tradition first that Paul laid out, and then a gospel writer came along decades later and said, you know what would make this story even better? If I just inserted a bunch of women eyewitnesses uh, for no reason. That's like offering something no one asked for. And instead, what I think is likely happening, my take on it is, what we have is the earliest traditions around Jesus' resurrection involved women eyewitnesses. And you can't uh, write it generally in different ways because that's, in fact, what happened. That's who was there. And um, the, you know, you may also, like, I don't know, maybe you would take for granted that Jesus uh, entrusted um, his resurrection message uh, to these women. And if you do, in some ways, I would say, um, that is wonderful, and I think that's because um, the earliest followers of Jesus did a really good job of pushing that message forward. Jesus himself, as you know, if you've been following with us through this gospel, uh, spent his entire life uplifting women and putting them on the same footing as the men in his life. Um, even Paul himself right, uh, points out female apostles that would have been uh, in Jesus even before he was, right? In Romans 16, uh, he points out, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So that's the, the Jesus tradition is very at home with entrusting the gospel message to people of any gender, because the spirit can work through anyone, right? So then that's how we have great examples like Gina. That, by the way, that's how you name a twin. You actually like pick a name that means something and uh, up, uplifts everyone. So for those of you who don't know, uh, that is our daughter, Junia, who is a twin, who we did not name twin. So the, this, is, this is where we're at. The, um, you know, while, while Jesus's contemporaries um, throughout our accounts didn't really... Um, you know, they, they spent a lot of time trying to hold on to power and stifle the voices on the margins. Uh, it's, it's very Jesus to have spent his entire life and his resurrection doing what he did, which was bringing, uh, uplifting the disenfranchised, bringing people in the margins into the center and pressing those with privilege and power. And uh, here's a, the final twist. According to the Gospels, the resurrected Jesus expects us to do exactly what he did. So this occurs in the account itself in the chapter that we just read today, where it says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That is language that Jesus is saying is my mission, what I am all about, has now become your mission. It's what you are all about. And he is saying that because he can ascend to be with the Father, send the Spirit to us, that we too then have everything we need to do what Jesus did 
And this is, this is what the Gospel of John makes even more challenging. It says, even greater works than what Jesus did earlier in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So now we're at chapter 20, where Jesus has appeared. He is going to the Father. He has breathed his spirit onto us. And he's saying that because he is alive and with God right now, and because you have God's spirit inside you, breathed into you, every breath you take is a reminder that you have everything you need living inside you to do greater works in the name of Jesus in the name of love and justice and peace and mercy than anybody back then and anybody today could have ever imagined. This is our time together as we've been talking about Jesus's body, his flesh and blood. It's time for us to join as a community around that body and to celebrate what it means for Jesus to be alive for the first disciples of Jesus, to have witnessed him, to have seen him, and what it means for us then to see Jesus today and to see Jesus in each other and to see the spirit in the works that we do. So we remember this time together uh, in a tradition that has also been carried on since the the early days uh, of Jesus's life. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As always and as embodied in Jesus' life, all are welcome at this table.